Well, welcome to the to the latest installment in GW's Media Breakfast. This is June 27, 2006, featuring Chester Hartman and Greg Squires, who will discuss um, their forthcoming book, There's No Such Thing as a Natural Disaster, Race, Class, class and Hurricane Katrina. Excuse me, sorry. Um, I'll start off. I'm Chester Hartman. I'm uh, an adjunct professor of sociology here at GW, and my regular job is I'm, a, I'm the director of research for the Poverty and Race Research Action Council here in Washington. Um, long-time student of Poverty and Race, we our organization produces a bimonthly publication called Poverty and Race, and there is a book list, um, issued called Poverty and Race in America. Um, I was down in New Orleans uh, last November for the conference that ACORN, the community organizing entity, held about how to plan in a way that um, involves ordinary people and not just the elite. And I'm now also on the one of the appointees to a uh, task force on long-range planning that uh, Governor Blanco uh, appointed the LRA, the Louisiana uh, Recovery Authority, and has task forces, and I'm on this long-range planning task force. I'm a city planner by, by background. So I've been having regular contact down there with, with, with people. Um, as far as our book is concerned, um, obviously the focus is on race and poverty. Uh, before I get into that, before Greg gets into that, there are some kind of interesting sidebars we, we picked up uh, about some of the events that happened as a result of the um, hurricane. I'm going to list a few of them that struck us as particularly uh, interesting. That sacred cows like the Red Cross and the Humane Society all of a sudden are now under investigation by the FBI and state uh, agencies for corruption. They had the Red Cross president resigned, the big firings, resignations. Um, interestingly enough, U.S. normally the giver of foreign aid was a big recipient of foreign aid, uh, $100 million from the United Arab um, Republics. Cuba actually tried to give us some money, which we did not, or some medical aid, which we did not accept. Uh, the whole issue of pets got tremendous publicity. A lot of uh, elderly people in particular, for whom the pet is their family, simply would not be evacuated when the feds wouldn't allow pets uh, on whatever vehicle they were they were uh, trying to get the people to go on and was recently there was a full page ad in the New York Times called rather cleverly no pet left behind supporting a new Senate bill on pets evacuation transportation standards um, the Iraq war got into the picture when all the normally in an event like this you'd have National Guard and reserves and active military helping there was very little of that that happened because so much much of our military is deployed in, in Iraq and then there's the whole question of absentee voting. We've, I mean, we've never had absentee voting on a scale uh, in the uh, April and, and May elections, uh, city elections in, in New Orleans. Uh, was not entirely successful in the sense that so many people living in um, Houston and uh, South Carolina, different parts of Texas, Atlanta, were not able to vote because they couldn't get back to, uh, they didn't use the absentee process and they couldn't get back to vote. But as I say, the central focus of our book is on the race and poverty, um, the impact, differential impact of the storms on people who are poor and minority, how the evacuation procedure was affected by that, and the solutions um, that are being proposed are so 
uh, oriented towards uh, different races and different uh, standards of economic um, success. So the book is a collection of um, essays written largely by combination of advocates, some of them are from New Orleans and the area, and academics. Uh, we have a piece which tries to put it in this event in some historic context, looking at other major um, crises of this sort, like the Chicago Fire of 1871, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, um, the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, and how solutions developed around that, and sort of putting this in, into that context. We also uh, are looking at, in the book, on how the some differential impact on specific subpopulations. There's a one treatment of how women were differentially impacted, um, how uh, the elderly were differentially impacted. Um, there are chapters, essays that deal with specific public services, in particular the education system and the public health system. Um, tens of thousands of students were displaced, uh, K-12 students, as well as college students. This university and many other universities took in students from Tulane and Xavier and, and uh, Dillard and other universities in New Orleans. But many thousands and thousands of younger kids, K-12 students, were uh, displaced into schools in other parts of Louisiana and other states and essentially lost a lot of their, a lot of them didn't actually go to school there and they lost a lot of their education. So looking at the impact on these public services is, is a very important piece of it. Um, and then, obviously, one key chapter is on housing. Uh, the government, government efforts both to provide temporary housing and permanent replacement housing, efforts which are really largely uh, a failure of government. And I think one of the important aspects of the book is looking at the role of government, the failure of government, and hoping that people will not take from uh, this the lesson that government doesn't work. Government does work when people are committed to making it work, and I think uh, our, certainly our administration uh, is not committed to, to uh, making things work uh, for people impacted by the storms. Um, we also deal with economic development on how New Orleans is going to rebuild an economy which was rather weak and uh, not very much in the way of uh, other than tourism uh, and trying to build a more diverse economy there. And um, also the whole question of community organizing, how ACORN and other groups have been able to quite successfully uh, reach out to people who are displaced, organize them into an effective planning um, uh, force to make sure that their voices are heard and that the normal planning process which otherwise would take place, which is partially the white elite doing the planning, is, is, is not allowed to determine what happens to New Orleans in the future. Um, and then a final chapter by uh, Peter Marcuse, who is a urban planner at Columbia University, deals with what a good planning process would be, a democratic planning process, and it puts forward a particular support for a bill in Congress now that the Congressional Black Caucus has put forward, which uh, tries to deal with the reconstruction of New Orleans in a way that, that preserves the, the rights of people to return and involves people in, in developing plans for their own return. Um, so that's generally a description of the book, and now I will turn over to Professor Squires to talk a little bit more about uh, what we found.
Um, I'm Greg Squires. I'm a professor of sociology and public policy and public administration here at GW, and I'm chair of the sociology department. And I've spent a lot of time over the last several years looking at issues of race and poverty, particularly in housing markets and urban communities. I've worked with HUD and the Civil Rights Commission, the Federal Reserve Board, and with a lot of community-based nonprofit advocacy groups. Uh, and in that respect, the Katrina situation in New Orleans was just a, seemed a quite logical outgrowth of, of, of work that I've been doing for years. And I, I, one of the things that occurred to me, and perhaps maybe the central message of our book, is that the uneven effects that we found, that is the impact on racial minorities and poor people, is not primarily the result of intentional bigotry by the Bush administration or by FEMA uh, or by anyone else, but rather these effects reflect decades, if not centuries, public policies and private practices that have segregated big cities in the United States by race and have concentrated poor people in selected neighborhoods and continue to do so today and will continue to do so into the future if we don't start thinking seriously in terms of different approaches to urban planning. So in some respects, Katrina and New Orleans is just one small blip on an, on an ongoing story of racial segregation and concentrated poverty. Uh, and the, the, the kinds of policies and practices that I'm talking about, are the, they're almost old news now to people that have been looking at this. We're, we're talking about FHA policies which denied federally insured mortgages to non-white homeowners for at least the first three decades of the program. We're talking about the construction and concentration of public housing in, in what formerly were and continue to be all black poor neighborhoods in big cities. We're talking about the federally subsidized highway system that made it easier for white suburbanites to get to their jobs downtown. We're talking about the enforcement of racially restrictive covenants where the courts would actually sanction uh, people saying that when they sold a home, they would, they would tie the buyer's hands into agreeing that when they came to sell the home, they would not sell the home to a person of a different race. We're talking about exclusionary zoning laws that persist today in almost every suburb. Uh, where suburbs limit the number of multifamily or apartment complexes or the number of affordable uh, units, which clearly shapes the racial composition uh, and the socioeconomic status of residents. On the private side, we're talking about redlining practices on the part of banks and insurance companies, uh, racial steering and other discriminatory practices by real estate agents, which continue to be documented today. Every time a fair housing group goes out and does testing in the community, they find explicit evidence of whites being given lots of information and shown lots of homes with blacks and other non-whites being steered to a limited set of homes in racially integrated or non-white neighborhoods and, and given a lot less information. Uh, Blockbusting and other forms of intimidation and violence continue to be used to keep people separate. These are all things that have been documented in New Orleans, but more importantly these are policies and practices that have been documented in urban communities all across the country. Now, related to these kinds of policies and practices uh, is the, and this is a more recent phenomenon, is the devaluing of public services of all kind. Uh, and I, I think you can almost trace this to the Reagan administration, uh, that, that, that public investments and in public services have increasingly been viewed as expenditures that we need to minimize, or perhaps privatize. But these are expenditures to minimize rather than investments that we need to increase in order to improve the quality of life in urban communities. So the failure of the levees in New Orleans reflects an ongoing pattern that, 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 that helps us understand 
um, the failure to maintain the roads and bridges in San Francisco in the face of the earthquake. It helps us understand why the water mains blew up in Georgetown a couple of years ago. Um, it helps us understand why school systems, public school systems anyway, are falling apart in all parts of the country. We have just devalued public services and public service, including uh, any investment in the infrastructure. Robert Reich, the former Labor Secretary, wrote a book, I think about eight or ten years ago now, the title of which I forget, but there was a, a discussion of the secession of the successful, where he pointed out that the, he said the upper fifth were moving into gated communities where they were using private security systems. They got their recreation at private country clubs, not public parks. If they had kids, they went to private schools. So in many ways, the wealthiest Americans were succeeding, seceding from the public. And this, of course, undercuts general support to maintain public hospitals, public schools, public parks, and, and other public services. So it shouldn't come as a great surprise to us to learn that in New Orleans, in the damaged areas of town, the population was 46% black compared to 26% elsewhere. Or that in the damaged areas, 48% of the population were renters compared to 31% elsewhere. Or the 21% were poor in the damaged areas compared to 15% elsewhere. In other words, the race and class dimensions of this disaster, I would argue, we would argue, were virtually planned. We've, we've set in place a series of policies and practices that could yield no other outcome than what we saw in New Orleans. Jim Carr, vice president for the Fannie Mae Foundation, suggested that if New Orleans had been, in fact, a more integrated, diverse community, there probably would have been the political clout to fix the levees a long time ago, and we wouldn't have seen the so-called natural disaster play out. Um, so what we see in New Orleans is not a bunch of stupid people that failed to heed, heed the warnings which is what Michael Bar Brown, the, the former head of FEMA, had suggested was the cause. Uh, what we're talking about in New Orleans and elsewhere is a series of, of long-term structural, political, and social forces that have been put in place by conscious, intentional public policies and private practices, and they continue to shape the uneven development of New Orleans and metropolitan areas across the country today. And our book is an attempt, I guess, to try to bring attention to these broader contextual ongoing policies and practices with an understanding that if we don't pay some attention to them, uh, not only will New Orleans not be rebuilt successfully on almost any definition of the term, but urban and metropolitan areas will continue to face the kinds of problems that gave rise to, to the race and class dimensions of Katrina. One thing just to add, in, in some ways you can say it's fortunate that New Orleans was the focus of this because it gets a, the problems get a lot more attention. If this had happened in Toledo or Spokane or Utica, uh, there would not be this level of attention on the very structural issues that Greg is, is describing. So I don't know if you can call that a silver lining, but uh, I think we're going to keep focusing on that because of the importance of New Orleans as a, as a symbol. Would, would city. cities like Spokane and stuff have had the same problems? I mean, do, are you saying they're smaller? I mean, different areas? Are it's, you saying that all cities, regardless of their size, have this problem? Or is it New York has more of this than Well, it depends on what you mean Toledo. by this problem. I mean, we're uh, talking about disasters of various sorts. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, a hurricane is not going to probably hit Toledo very, very much. But there are other disasters that can happen to any city. And what we're saying is that all of those cities that I just arbitrarily picked three cities, all of those cities have the same problems Greg is describing. And should there be, should the disaster have occurred there, I don't think 
we'd have the same focus on the problems. That but you probably, probably have the same bias. I mean, my guess is if you had a flood that wiped out much of Toledo, my guess is you would see it, it's poor people who would pay oh, the sure. largest cost. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, that the, and my guess is the minority population would have paid the biggest cost as well. Now, those communities may not be as hyper-segregated as Chicago and New York and Detroit and Pittsburgh and Cleveland, uh, but the same overall pattern would, would prevail. Is, um, I guess, could you, I'm interested in this, could you talk about sort of how this all relates to the Washington area and D.C. specifically? Is D.C. sort of in the same boat any better off than New Orleans, any worse off? Or are we, I mean, living here, I, I kind of have some idea as to what your answer might be, but I'm just interested in hearing what you have to say about this area specifically. Well, Washington, D.C., let me say a couple things. During the 1990s, in most cities, the level of concentrated poverty actually went down. It skyrocketed in Washington, D.C. Don't quote me on these numbers, but I think the number of poor tracks went from something like 40 to 80, and the number of people living in them went from something like 20,000 to 80,000 in Washington, D.C. In a decade where nationwide, concentrated poverty actually went down a little bit. Racial segregation in Washington, D.C. is one of the highest in the country. Uh, it's not up there with Detroit and Chicago, but it is very high. Um, if you were to think of it, if you were to think of some kind of disaster, maybe it wouldn't be a hurricane. Maybe it could be actually or a tornado. Mm-hmm. Think about who could evacuate Washington D.C. more readily than others. Uh, we have the same pattern in terms of who owns cars, who has access to friends and connections elsewhere where they where they could survive. So in, in that respect, I think there there are parallels. Certainly in terms of the uneven quality of public institutions, uh, it's the same. I've got some number. I don't know if I brought them with me. The, the number of pediatricians per child is something like one out of 20 in Bethesda, and it's one out of 800 in the southeast part of Washington, D.C. This is one example. So we see tremendous inequities in, 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 in the quality of both public and private services. Washington, D.C., maybe because it's the seat of government, and so many people work for government agencies, we are cushioned a little better against the vagaries of inflation, I guess. Mm-hmm. The people's salaries don't go up and down as much as they do in other communities. And the, certainly the median income in the district here is, is higher than elsewhere. But there was something that came out in the Post less than a year ago. I think that the disparity between those in the top fifth and the lowest fifth in Washington, D.C. was something like 30 to 1, whereas nationwide the average is something like 6 or 7 to 1 in big cities. And I think, if my memory serves, that among the 40 or 50 largest cities in the country, we had the highest disparity in terms of the, the, the median income between the top fifth and lowest fifth. Don't quote me on any of those exact numbers, no. but those overall patterns I'm quite confident about. Are there any, would you say that there are any communities that would serve as a model for the opposite type of urban planning? I mean, is there is there any city that we can look to where we can that these problems were avoided in the infrastructure? Well, there are certainly some communities that that have much more consciously attempted to address the problem of racial segregation. I think of Oak Park, the suburb of uh, on the west side of Chicago, uh, Shaker Heights in Cleveland, and there are other islands where they... These tend to be small communities that are very consciously working to do this, and they're being successful. And they're middle middle income, if not upper income, suburbs outside of, of big cities. Yeah. 
but I, I would say there are no big cities that would deviate markedly from the pattern that Greg describes. There are some cities. I mean, there are some cities I think that have done some things from a planning perspective to try to deal with some of these issues a little better. I think Portland's urban growth boundary, where they've tried to limit growth beyond a certain point, beyond the city limits, it has effectively turned more growth and development inward, uh, so that that's they, they have. They have reduced levels of poverty. One of the problems is some claim that it's also increased the cost of housing tremendously within the... the, the There's Portland, the, Oregon, not Portland, Maine. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, you know, to some extent, Maryland is experimenting with smart growth to do transit-oriented development to try to, to, to nurture more patterns of what we call more even development rather than uneven but there's no obvious model out there that we're suggesting that New Orleans or Detroit or Utica should, should, should copy. But we do think there's examples of policies and practices that some that are being, for example, living wage rules that do address the wage inequity. There's now probably 100 communities around the country that have living wage rules. Some states have increased their minimum wage rules, even though the federal government continues to refuse to do so. There's some inclusionary zoning. The Washington, D.C. just passed a mandatory inclusionary zoning just a few weeks ago, I think, and other communities have been doing these things. So you see bits and pieces of what we would consider more progressive planning to try to deal with some of these inequities, but it's hard to identify a particular city or metropolitan area that has managed these things. And our hope in some way is that if New Orleans is rebuilt properly, it becomes a, a model for what other cities might do with or without hurricanes. Something you mentioned earlier was was essentially not just in the public sector but in the private sector kind of the the discrimination that's that's faced by real estate agents and, and banks and, and, and that sort of thing. How how could how could a, a government or, or a city planner how could a how could they how could they kind of Address that. Address that. You, you mean you don't mean discrimination faced by banks? I, I mean, I'm sorry. Okay. That caused by. Well, caused by. It, that, sorry. That's in in some cases, mayors and county executives have joined with fair housing groups and filed lawsuits against lenders that, that that operate in a discriminatory way. A number of metropolitan areas will look at a lender's financial practices and use that as a criteria for determining where they'll deposit public money. And so there are lots of carrots and sticks that can be used by elected officials. Um, the uh, Elliot Spitzer in New York has been trying very hard to bring lenders and insurance companies into line, not just on issues of racial discrimination, but all forms of, of corporate corruption and improper practice. One of the unfortunate things is, in, and this is getting a little bit away from this, but you know, Elliot Spitzer was trying to take on the issue of predatory lending and the comptroller of the currency is saying, no, that's a national law, national responsibilities. So the comptroller, which itself has fair lending responsibilities, instead of spending time doing that, is spending its time suing Elliot Spitzer so he doesn't go about addressing the issues of predatory lending. So there are lots of handles that, that, that are like that. And there are lots of good laws, too. I mean, the uh, Community Reinvestment Act, federal law that requires lending most lending institutions, although it doesn't cover all of them, <coughs> to make credit available in their service area. There are anti-discrimination laws, both federal and some states and localities have even stronger laws about this. And But it's, a, you know, even if there are good laws, there's a whole question of enforcement, whether HUD or local or state agencies are going to enforce things properly. 
some of the private groups like fair housing groups use pair tester uh, systems where they will send a say a white and a black person to can be to rent an apartment buy a house uh, seek a job um, and there are really imaginative uses of that and they can prove you know through reports very careful reports that people write up afterwards about differential treatment that there is discriminatory behavior, in which case then that can lead to lawsuits, it can lead to settlements and changes in behavior. And some city and state governments provide financial assistance to the fair housing groups that are doing that testing. When I was in Milwaukee, I worked with a a nonprofit group that got a lot of money from the city of Milwaukee to monitor bank lending practices, and then we used the Community Reinvestment Act to negotiate lending agreements with local lenders who were not in compliance with the act. So here, the city wasn't doing it directly. They were giving money to a nonprofit group that was then using the power of a federal law to bring money into the city that otherwise wasn't coming. Or we could build stadiums in hopes that wealth will trickle down to the rest of us, and that will solve our problems. That would work. This is sort of off the topic a little bit, but um, a lot of people have looked at the Katrina disaster as an indicator of uniquely American problems of the sort of like the civil rights the the dark outcome of the failure of of civil rights and um, if you look at if you look at Johannesburg, if you look at Paris like these are problems all over the world um, in terms of urban planning, Would, would you would you say that Katrina is specifically American say that these issues, these particular issues that you're discussing are American, or would you say that they're universal? I mean, I guess there are aspects of it that are universal, but I think the, what is uniquely American is the extreme disparities that exist and are, and are growing between uh, the rich and the poor, between white and uh, various minorities. And the other is the fact our own history which we seem to not want to acknowledge um, our own history of race in this country is not only slavery, but you know the Reconstruction era, the hundred years of Jim Crow. All of this has current realities. People sort of slough, you know, oh, that's history, as if somehow it's irrelevant. But it's not irrelevant. It's very relevant, and that that really does not characterize uh, other countries. I mean, other countries have had slavery, obviously, but. The extent to which we had it, the way the way in which it was built into the system. I think the first five presidents, as I recall, were slave owned uh, holders. Uh, it's it's quite amazing. Uh, the namesake of this university. <laughs> I'd like to add on to that. Yeah. I, I think there is, a, in, in one respect, where we are very unique, and that has to do with what I heard yesterday is the yo-yo phenomenon. Where here in the United States, there's this notion that you're on your own. That other, at least advanced industrial societies, have a much more developed social welfare system. Where they view these kinds of problems as collective social problems that they attempt to deal with on a public or collective basis. Here, we have this this notion that things are pretty much the result of individual voluntary choices. People in New Orleans suffered because they made the bad decision not to vacate. They also made the bad decision not to go buy a car that they couldn't afford, I guess. But, but we, we have this very individualistic notion, and we, we, don't, we, we believe that things are the result of bad decisions that people voluntarily make. Most European societies 
view these things as collective issues to be dealt with on a collective basis. And, and, and so I suspect if something like Katrina happened in most European cities, you would see a much more immediate and much more effective response to these kinds of things. And, and a related aspect of what Greg is talking about is to view racism as purely individual behavior, that someone is racist and is behaving in a racist way towards someone else, as opposed to looking at the structure of society and the institutional way in which racism is built into the system. And it's a very different way of approaching things and requires very different solutions, obviously. John Powell, in, in his book, makes it very explicit. He says that you don't have to have an individual identifiable racist actor and an individual identifiable victim of racism in order for there to be a racist problem. Uh, and I think the best example I can think of is, is the way we fund public schools. We rely on local property taxes. Where, where is property more valuable? in white communities or black communities. Well, this is a system that, that is an example of institutional racism. It, I don't know that there's an individual sitting out there who we can say they decided this is the way we're going to do it and therefore it's racist. And, and this is why I say discussions as to whether or not George Bush is a bigot is irrelevant to what's going on in, in New Orleans. And it's irrelevant, to, it's irrelevant to the issue of whether or not race is a factor and it's irrelevant to what's going on. And, and I sort of hate to see us get caught up in those. Uh, and, but again, I think a lot of this has to do with this individualistic ideology that dominates our approach to these issues in the United States that is different elsewhere. Jacksonian kind of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps yeah. that doesn't actually apply. That's yeah. right. First we take away people's boots and then we do. <laughs> I mean, think of what, why are we the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have a universal health care, national health care program? So, what what sort of, what, because as seen as how we are in an individualistic nation and whatnot, and I, I don't know if in your research, have you, have you seen that people would be even amenable to, to, to kind of changing their mindset or changing, I mean, how how could you, if we were to adopt a more, a more kind of, adopt for example the European model and, and universal healthcare, it, would the public be? Have, have you noticed? If the I, I think there's evidence that, that the, the general public would be supportive of a single payer system. People who would not be supportive are those pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and other powerful interests that that benefit by the way things currently stand. So it makes it very difficult to, to move in that direction. But I think if you're asking would there be public support, I think the answer is yes. I think there's polls all the time that show that people would be willing to pay more in taxes to improve the quality of public schools. Uh, it, it's not that the, the, the general public has got is locked into this mindset that they don't want to pay any taxes. They do want to feel, though, that they're going to get something in return for it. I think you've gone through, a, obviously, a laundry list of problems, and there's so many things. If I come in and I'm elected mayor of Chicago and I really look at this and I want to make a change, is there something that you would recommend starting with first? Is, edu is it education because people, you know, gets the youth moving, or is this something you just kind of got to take it on all at once, or, or what... You know, coming up with remedies or solutions or working towards improving a lot of these situations, where do you start? I do think it would be dangerous 
to try to prioritize them. And I, on the one hand, okay. I you can't do everything right from the start, but I think it would be very dangerous to pick employment or housing or education or any one area and say, this is where we're going to start, and once we get this fixed, we're going to move on to other things. Because I think to some extent, there's certain common problems across the board. I think we, we would argue that you, you do need to find a way of getting more democratic participation and planning involved in all of our major institutions. Uh, when Harold Washington was elected mayor of Chicago, you pick that as an example, he developed an economic development plan and a public education plan, public service across the board, and, and started to do lots of things differently, in addition to getting rid of a lot of the corruption and patronage of the old daily machine. Um, I think another way of looking at that is to make sure that people understand the links among these different systems, that health and housing are intimately related, that there are so many health problems that are housing problems, whether it's asthma or fires or lead poisoning, education. We, we've been doing a lot of work recently on the question of high classroom turnover, K-12 to classrooms that have 50 to 75 percent turnover in a given year. And it's a very common problem. And you look at why it exists, and it primarily exists for low-income and minority kids, and it exists primarily because of their housing instability. People are forced to move for all kinds of reasons, for gentrification or code enforcement or fires or rent increases, whatever. And so they move, and they have to move, so the kid has to move to a different school. And the best thing you could do for school improvement is to create housing stability so that the school situation is stable. So again, those are examples of, of how systems really need to be understood as complementary and linked. And, and you can't really, it gets to the question of priorities. I don't think there is a priority. There's a priority for dealing with them all at the same time. Gene Anion has just written a book called Radical Possibilities. It's about school reform. But for the first 80% of the book, she talks about how we cannot think about meaningful school reform without addressing what she calls larger macroeconomic issues. And she talks about all kinds of policies to deal with poverty and inequality. Because when you, when you have kids coming to school hungry or with headaches, you can't expect them to learn no matter, almost no matter what you do with the schools. And, 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 and we need to understand that broader context and address that while at the same time trying to do something about goes on within the classroom building. I'm going to move back a little bit, but kind of go off this topic. But something, uh, Chester, you mentioned in your introduction was interesting. What was, I've heard a lot of, you know, the racial factors, elderly of Katrina, but you said you also studied impact on women, different genders. What what did you see there? I haven't heard much about the gender disparity. This you know was a chapter written by a woman named Margaret Gillette, who's at Brandeis. No, no, the, the women. Oh. It's meant the women, not the Oh, I'm age. sorry, I'm sorry. Women, yeah. Heidi Hartman and Avis Jones de Weaver. They're from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, which is associated with GW, isn't it? Something it is, with yeah. women's studies. Yeah. And Heidi herself is a MacArthur genius. Aha, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> Former MacArthur. <laughs> well, let me try to remember what her, their main findings were on well, the their main, Again, what they did very nicely was link up what's going on in New Orleans what's going, with what's going on nationally and showed the socioeconomic status, the job status, the income, the wealth of women compared to men, and, and looked throughout the Gulf region, not just in New Orleans, looked at several communities in that area, and showed that women do not have the resources that men do, which means that when they're faced with a, a catastrophe like this, 
it's much more difficult for them to deal with it. And they often have the responsibilities of trying to get the kids out of the home and, and away yeah. from the school. And, and so many of them are single moms to begin with. I mean, they don't have a partner to, to help with this. So we see that, you know, the feminization of poverty sort of in bold relief here mm-hmm. uh, with these impacts coming on particularly hard on, on women. But much of what they talk about applies as much to almost any metropolitan area in the country as it does to New Orleans. A lot of a lot of kind of what's being said is I guess is there any what I, granted that well as you said this was a result of a lot of a lot of, of decades and perhaps centuries of, of bad policy, but if you had been told, you know, three days before, what what could have been done August 25th, August 26th, August 27th, to kind of avoid, or was it completely and totally unavoidable? And well, I think, uh, uh, off the top of my head, there, there was a week, the, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel chain managed to get buses in to vacate residents of their hotel. Al Gore managed to charter two airplanes to get the patients out of a hospital where a friend of his served as a doctor. That tells me that if we had somehow organized the right public resources, with three days' notices, we could have evacuated a lot of people to safety. The whole school bus fleet should have been used and could have been used. Trains were... Could have been used uh, to the extent that people had to be relocated into a temporary shelter like the convention center or something. Have supplies there, have doctors there, have social workers there. And for I mean, the whole mental health area of this has been so underplayed. There was a piece in the Times the other day, so about suicides being up. I mean, this is a trauma with enormous consequences. And there was a very good letter in yesterday's Times by the Yale. Chaplain, I forget his name, Streeter, William Streeter, I think is his name. And he pointed out that one of the, from his experience, he's a social worker by background, from his experience, when people experience a trauma, the notion that there are, that help is on the way, that, that, that there is a structure out there to get them through it is so important for recovery. And yet, it wasn't there. And almost a year later, it isn't there. I, mean, I don't know if you've been down to New Orleans. My, my son has been down there a lot recently helping to start a community kitchen. And his description of what he sees is very much similar to what I saw last November. I mean, cars still up in trees in some cases, uh, miles and miles of abandoned houses, abandoned stores, piles of rubbish every place. I mean, what kind of a message is that to people, that, that there is something around that's going to help them? A year later, it's, it's astounding. And I think we're going to see not only mental health long-term effects, but we may sort of Agent Orange-like be, see a lot of physical effects. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of, of uh, toxic waste, as you might imagine, when, when houses get flooded like that. And people are breathing this stuff in, and I'm quite sure that two, three years from now there's going to be something called a New Orleans Syndrome, where people are going to hit all kinds of diseases and health problems that they can trace back to their experience in the the weeks and months after the, the hurricanes. 
and one of the interesting problems that's brought out in our health chapter is that so many of these men, the medical records were destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. So that even if a doctor could somehow link up with a patient, it became almost impossible to know what that patient's situation yeah. really was. And one of the recommendations, the woman who wrote the health chapter is a public health official and a doctor in New Orleans, um, worked for the city. She is very strong on electronic records, I think paper records, that are transferable and so that if a person is evacuated to Houston and is in need of some kind of serious medical care, they have access to what the treatment has been, what the diagnosis has been. And people are in no position to self-report at that point in their lives either. So it's terribly important to have records. And school records too, it's the same thing in the uh, education area. Uh, if a kid gets transferred to some school in Atlanta, you want to know something about his or her health records, his or her academic records, where, where they are on the curriculum. So there's a way there. And you know, we have the capability of doing this. It's not as if this is some new technology that's just been invented. Is that is that the type of thing that really, um, in your opinion, is a local push and a local issue, or does it need national, it doesn't need federal support or fed, someone in the federal government to say we're doing this? I would say yes. It needs everything. It needs state, Both. federal, and local yeah. working together. And one of the things we really have seen here is the failure of governmental coordination. I mean, there, uh, Doug Brinkley's new book on Katrina really is so much about... Uh, the failure of government at all levels. It wasn't just the national administration, it wasn't just Mayor Nagin, it wasn't Governor Blanco, it was all of them. Not communicating with each other, not taking responsibility, not showing leadership. Um, and that's, we've got to, and you know, the worst conspiratorial thinking about this, which I sometimes share, is that, at least in terms of the national administration, they almost want to show that government doesn't work. That's part of their message. And uh, it is so important when any kind of crisis like this occurs that government is the actor that you need to depend upon. And if you don't have competent people, and they did not have competent people, if you don't have a real commitment to put resources in, then the lesson is, well, you know, can't depend upon the government any longer. Yeah. And we've got to turn that around. And having said that, I mean, I mean, there were some things that are unique about New Orleans. Their schools were particularly problematic. My understanding is the corruption in the police department and the criminal justice system uh, was one of the worst in the country. Um, so, in a lot of ways, you know, New Orleans, New Orleans has farther to go than, than than most. But there still is an important federal role here, just from from the levies. I mean, the, the report that was released about a month ago, where it was the Army Corps of Engineers acknowledged that there were design flaws, and this is a, a federal responsibility. Uh, so it's, on the one hand, you know, it's easy to finger point because there's lots of different people that have lots of different responsibilities. And it's easy for us as academics who didn't live there, you know, to, to do all this finger pointing. Um, but that, in a part, is what we're trying to move away from here to understand that the, the broader issues are not just the immediate failures of FEMA. Again, to come back to, to the broader public policies and private practices that created the opportunity for Katrina to exist as it did. One of the problems, really, with studying this and trying to draw it to public attention is that there's there's no hook, kind of. You know, there's no people will tend to say, "Oh, these systems are already in place, and there's nothing I can do." And and, and this is almost the ground on which 
everyone in this room is is standing, you know. Um, and now that we have this galvanizing event, uh, what can we do? You know, what what's what's the action that we should take? Should we be volunteering with Acorn? Should we be campaigning for? I mean, obviously, yes, we should be doing all of these things. But what what would be your suggestions as far as personal action? I think people have to start with where they are. I mean, as as a reporter, you might think about what kind of stories would would interest you that that would address something that hasn't gotten out yet or hasn't gotten out sufficiently. Uh, I think that you know. Obviously, if you're an elected official in the Gulf region, uh, you might have more of an impact on general planning initiatives. Um, if, if you're a developer, uh, there, there's going to be a lot of money going in there, and, and uh, a lot of that money could be used to build more affordable housing, not necessarily to replace the public housing units that have been lost, but to provide replacement housing for those, those people. So I think a lot of you ask what can individuals do. I think you have to think in terms of where you're currently situated, which is one of the reasons why we did this. I mean, we're you know we're research, we do urban-related academic research. So this is something we thought we could do, and you know we're donating the royalties to to uh, an emergency service down there, and it's a small, maybe just a token gesture. Oh, millions and millions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at the vast turnout today. But uh, you know. So we sort of started with where we were using the tools that we have available to try to bring some attention in a positive way to what's going to happen in that part of the country. Now, he's a planner, so it really is his responsibility. <laughs> kind of moving into current news, and you're talking about sort of the privatization of all these services and, and things like that. So yesterday, Warren Buffett gives thirty-one billion dollars to Bill to Bill Gates. Um, do you see? And uh, personally, working at the university, I see kids coming up who are really, really involved and really engaged in their communities and giving back a lot more than I was when I was in school. And I think people have been recently. Do you think we'll see more private? Lenders giving more money or, or putting it in different directions that they can do the sort of public health and education, those sort of issues? I mean, do you think in a way they're sort of filling the void that has been left if, if the government's sort of getting away from these things? I think you will see at least some private charitable organizations that do have a long-term interest that will stay with this but I don't see how they could possibly provide the resources or replace the resources that should be coming, again, from the public sector, and, and as well as from the private sector. But the key to make the private sector resources being in place is often public responsibility. Chester mentioned the Community Reinvestment Act. It is important for investors, for lenders, to be active in this region of the country. And for that to happen, it's going to require that the federal financial regulatory agencies who have oversight responsibility do their job. Now, lenders under the CRA can get credit, for whatever whatever that means, for investments in, in disaster areas. This is a new part of the rules that, that were, were written to try to encourage more investment in, 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 in the Gulf region. But again, this is going to require the appropriate government regulatory agencies to supervise those lenders under their supervision to make sure they're doing the right thing. I think that clearly is... I mean, it'd be interesting to see whether the Buffett move inspires other people <laughs> with lesser money, but still with a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, he, he did two things. One is to make the money available. That's a lot of money. The other is to 
very interesting choice. In the past, when people have done things like this, you know, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, they've done it in their in their name. And he has said, "Hey, there's somebody else who does this well." And I presume Gates's foundation really does things well in health and in schools. I don't really know the data on it. I know something about what they do, and that's an extraordinary thing in in itself to pick up on what is working and what is effective and put your resources there without the need to sort of put your own, I mean, obviously his name is <laughs> getting all over the papers now, but not perpetually. And it's yeah. still a case foundation. So interesting to see if others follow that model. Um, and then what, how that fits in with what government is doing and should be doing. I mean, uh, government, our government, world government, has not been doing enough about HIV AIDS. And I think the Gates Foundation really has seen the African problem as, as central. Um, the education reforms to the small schools in New York and such, um, that seems to be a good idea and seems to be working. Well, one thing's a little worrisome, and we were just talking about this before, Greg and I, about when you have a small, private, not small in the sense of the number of people involved, foundation like the Gates Foundation, in terms of decision making, it's their ideas and their whims uh, that say this is an important problem, this is how to try to solve it. It's not subject to any broader consensus. It's not subject to democratic control. And what if, you know, what if it turns out that small schools are not such a good idea? Well, vaccinations aren't really working that well. Yeah. So that's. I'm glad to see there's more than one actor in there, though, the government and and private foundations. You know, what it just occurred to me uh, with, with the Buffett thing. He's buying into the the, the Gates brand. He likes what they're doing. And, and, and that brand is, is attractive. That's what GW is supposed to be doing now, right? We're trying to create the brand, the GW yeah. brand. I mean, maybe if we just got some of that $134 billion money from Gates, we yeah. could... Get into that. But I see that happening maybe more and more in the future. When, when, when people do this, when they link up with somebody, it's obviously because they like what that organization has been doing. They're buying into their brand. And and what worries me is somebody's going to give the same amount of money to the Bradley Foundation. It can happen. I mean, there are more people likely to have money on that side of the mm -hmm. spectrum than in the, the Buffett side, politically. And it's been true. I mean, to look at, at the local think tanks, for example, you know, compare AEI and Heritage, what they have versus Institute Policy Studies, and, you know, the right really is uh, totally outclassing the left in terms of resources.